Welcome back to Bleacher Brawls, the home of the greatest rivalry in professional sports. We have a very special Yankees episode coming at you in a few, but first we have to tell you about all the places you can find us. BleacherBrawls.com is the home for our Yankees and Red Sox columns, football, basketball, and soccer content, as well as movie reviews, quizzes, and plenty of trash talk. Our YouTube channel has a few videos a week with picks, predictions, our prospect pipeline series, and more. Our main social media hub is Twitter at Bleacher Brawl, where you can ask us any questions, give any feedback, and follow us to be the first to hear about our latest content. This podcast is available on your listening app of choice, and when you finish listening to today's super exciting episode, you'll want to drop us a nice five-star review. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to Bleacher Brawls, the home of the rivalry, taking the brawl right from the bleachers straight to you. My name is Barnes. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, John, tonight, and we have our very first guest joining us here on Bleacher Brawls. He is a current head coach and also going into his 15th season as head coach at Marist. Uh, he is a former pro wrestler and former New York Yankee. We have Joe Asanio joining us tonight. Joe, how are you doing tonight? Good. John and Barnsley, great to be here. Oh, man, this is just so happy to cool. have you. So I need to address the elephant in the room first. Sure. Former pro wrestler. I <laughs> I literally, John and I are both huge wrestling fans. Are you? We got to just know like how that happened. <laughs> okay. So um, I used to work for a minor league baseball team. I used to work for the Hudson Valley Renegades. They were the class A affiliate of the Tampa Bay Rays for years and just recently have become a New York Yankees affiliate. Um, but I was uh, sitting at my desk one day, and I want to say it was maybe about eight years ago or so, somewhere around there. And uh, my general manager walked into my office with uh, a wrestling promoter and said, hey, we're thinking about doing a wrestling show here at the stadium. I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's let's do it. I think that'll be great. They'll sell tickets, you know, give us an opportunity to do some other events at the stadium. And uh, they didn't leave my office and they're just looking at me. I'm like, what's up? They're like, uh, we want you to wrestle. I'm like, I'm not going to start wrestling. I think I was, you know, maybe, you know, 40 something, 47, 48 at the time. I said, yeah, no, this is not going to be a career change for me. So um, they left and uh, they came back. And I've been a diehard wrestling fan my entire life as well. So uh, I was aware of the the bumps and bruises that you take when you're, you know, doing that. And um, they came back about 10 minutes later, like, you know, we really think you should wrestle. And the promoter looked at me and goes, listen, I'll, I'll just make it real easy for you. We'll put you in a tag team match. You know, you can go in, put a headlock on somebody and then tag out. And, you know, we'll just, uh, you know, make it real easy for you. And I looked at him, I said, listen, if I'm going to do this, then I want to do it. I'm not going to do it, you know, half-assed. I'm going to go after it and just, you know, get it done. So I literally trained uh, for about three months, um, two, three times a week, I was going and I was, uh, working with Tommy Dreamer. Um, uh, I don't know if you remember him from ECW and the WWE and then, uh, you know, Vic Hale, uh, Vic Delicious, you know, Hale Collins and, uh, was just, uh, doing a lot of, uh, uh, training with them at their facility. I also did some stuff in Connecticut with, uh, 
uh, Randy Busta. They just call, they just call him Randy Busta, and uh, he you know it just uh, incredible time learning. Uh, I also have to thank Lou Santiago who. Um, uh, who also worked at Maris, who was a professional wrestler. And he, he was the first one who uh, worked with me and just kind of taught me the ropes. And um, it was uh, such an incredible, just learning experience of, of what these guys do every day and every, you know, every night and what they put their bodies through. But uh, I was fairly athletic and I was always pretty athletic. So uh, when we were training, I said to them, I said, you know, I think I could do a good drop kick. And they're like, okay, well show us. So uh, you know, we did a spot and I, I drop kicked hail and I hit him right in the face with my feet. <laughs> and he looked at me and goes, you're doing a drop kick. We're going to make that one of your spots. So, you know, we worked on it and we trained. And then um, the, the funny part about this whole story was um, at the wrestling event, Hulk Hogan was the headliner at the event. Wow. Uh, this was a huge event. It was uh, Northeast Wrestling and... Um, uh, I, I was on the card. Uh, I was actually one of the feature matches as well. Um, but uh, th the best part was I was supposed to be in a tag match and my tag team partner was supposed to be Jerry the King Lawler. It was going to be Jerry the King Lawler and myself against um, uh, Romeo Roselli and Luke Robinson. Uh, I don't know if you know, remember Romeo from WWE days, but um that was right before Jerry the King Lawler had his heart attack on TV. So he had his heart attack and I had no tag team partner. So the promoter called me and said, okay, I'm gonna put you with Goldust instead. So it was me and Dustin Rhodes uh, were the tag team partners. And um, I'm gonna give you guys a link at some point because that match is actually on YouTube. And it is one of the most hysterical matches ever. I don't know if you guys found it or not, but it is actually on YouTube. And um, there were some crazy spots. R Romeo came up with this thing that we were going to actually do a baseball skit in the ring. And it is absolutely hysterical. Uh, I won't even, you know, if you haven't seen it, I won't, you know, spoil the surprise. But it is absolutely a hysterical um uh skit that we did and uh we still talk about it to this day you know we'll, we'll put it on facebook and uh say hey you know nine years ago we made history or you know however long ago it was but uh it, it was great you know just learning to do all the spots and uh, uh having gold dust as a tag team partner was just incredible uh what what an amazing man uh just listening to his story and what he's gone through and um you know we're still friends to this day and it's just uh uh, I, I'm very fortunate that I was in the right place at the right time to be able to do that. I am going to look up this YouTube match, this match on YouTube as soon as we get off. I know you've hyped it up. I can't wait to see it. Oh, so no, I it, ask you. you guys might want to contact me after and say, oh my God, this is incredible. <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to hold you to it. Like, cause yeah. I freaking just literally love wrestling. Like, and I guess my question here is, as a former professional baseball player, and then obviously you got into wrestling, like definitely later, you know, you said 47, right around 47 yep. Yep. is, yep. do you have a whole new respect for those perform like those athletes as well? Well, I always had the respect for them, but I, I had a renewed respect just, you know, when you're taking bumps, uh, you know, you, you, people can say whatever they want, you know, there's padding, there's plywood, it's on a spring. 
but it, it hurts. I mean, if you don't land correctly, you're sore. Uh, I think the thing that keeps you going is just the adrenaline of the event. And one of the things that they always say to you is it's just however fast you think you're going, slow it down. Just continue to slow it down and just continue to tell the story. And I think that that was, you know, the really cool part for me was just learning that side of the business and, and you know, again, what they put their, self, their, their bodies through every night. But I did it. Uh, I then wrestled another three times after that uh, each, each year when the, uh, when the promoter brought back the wrestling. So as a lifelong fan, like who did you grow up watching? Like who were your favorites growing up? Man, I had so many because I loved, you know, I loved the uh, Attitude Era. But, you know, even before that, I was, uh, you know, I'm a lot older than you guys. So I was a big uh, fan of Tony Gurria and Dean Ho and, um, uh, you know, Bruno San Martino and, you know, that that era of wrestling, Bob Backlund, you know, that era, the Iron Sheik. You know, those were, you know, Sergeant Slaughter, like the old school guys who were, uh, you know, that was, you know, how I grew up. And it wasn't like it is today. You know, you'd watch wrestling for an hour. They'd have one good match and the rest of the match was were, you know, somebody beating up a jobber the entire time. You know, there were never like constant great matches the entire time. And so it was um, uh, just just getting to watch that and growing up was uh, awesome. But then I think, you know, my favorite part of the wrestling world was when, you know, you had the uh, Monday Night Wars between Nitro and uh, you know, Raw with, uh, you know, when Sting was doing his skit with, you know, the the whole NWO and, you know, you had Stone Cold and The Rock on the other side. I just think that was the heyday of wrestling. And I don't know if that'll ever be topped. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the Attitude Era was so cool, and like, I mean, my favorite wrestler growing up, and still to this day, my my one of my best friends and I, we still like call each other and leave each other stupid voicemails in the voice of Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh Just, yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Let me tell you something, there, brother. <laughs> and it, it was just like that was just totally fun. But uh, my final question about wrestling and like that whole thing was, what was your finisher, and then. It, was there ever a person that you pitched against in the majors or, or like in the minors, wherever that you would want to hit your finisher on? Um, let me see. Well, the first time I wrestled uh, again, I don't want to spoil the finisher for the first time. Uh, they had me do like a wind up fastball punch type of thing. Um, and then uh, the last couple uh i had a pretty good spear so um it was again you guys i'm sure will find these things on youtube and have your you know good laughs but uh, i would say my drop kick was my best move of all and then is there any uh one that you may have pitched against that you're like you know what i kind of want to drop kick that guy <laughs> in, in a respectful way of course yeah no nah, there were some guys who just you just didn't care for um uh i i don't know i i think i i always remember you know jt snow showing up mariano rivera when he hit a home run off him in anaheim and he kind of watched it until it landed i mean i remember that pretty vividly just thinking you know he was a prick um i don't know if i'm allowed to say that on here but uh then uh i don't know i no nah, i mean th there was really nobody who 
you know, came across as just, you know, a jerk that, you know, you didn't want to, I mean, there were guys who I wasn't thrilled when I saw them strolling into the, you know, batter's box. Uh, probably the most uh, person, or the, the, the person that I probably didn't like facing the most was Edgar Martinez. I mean, he was just unbelievable to pitch against. Uh, you'd make the best pitch you could make and he would just foul it off. It was like crazy. He could foul pitches off just to, you know, get a pitch he could hit. It's, it's it's just like one of those things like as a baseball fan and I'm I'm a little bit younger than John I'm actually 31 um mm-hmm. so when you were playing I was like four so I, I it's yeah. like literally right before I could remember things I know John will remember it way better than I do but I remember growing up Edgar Martinez always being a tough out was and like oh. you said he was just a tough batter right yeah he was incredible yeah Griffey Jr. again was no fun you know guys like that um, Frank Thomas, when you face Frank Thomas, uh, he literally took up the whole batter's box. I mean, he, he was just a large man that just was, you just didn't feel like you could get an advantage against him. And did it drive you crazy the way like a ball would come? You could throw a pitch like a foot away from him, but he'd still jump back. Did that drive yeah. you crazy as a pitcher to see him always like trying to work the umpire to get more ball, like get the call, get the call? I think honestly, the thing that would drive me more crazy would be when I would make great pitches and then I wouldn't get the benefit of the doubt because I was a rookie. And, you know, that happened to me with Paul Molitor. I had Paul Molitor struck out multiple times and uh, he ended up walking. And uh, I remember Al Clark was the umpire. Uh, he was the home plate umpire. And uh, uh, funny story, I, I'm, I get out of the inning. It was up in Toronto. And I'm like, Al, where are those pitches to Molitor? He's like, Joe, that's Paul Molitor. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame. I said, Al, if you give me one or two of those pitches, I can get in the Hall of Fame too. And then I just <laughs> kept walking through the dugout. But it was um, it, it was frustrating at times. Uh, uh, my major league day or my Yankee Stadium debut, I threw a fastball literally right down the middle to Otis Nixon, and the umpire called it the ball. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. You know, because that was uh, when I started my career. I started on the road, so when I was at Yankee Stadium, I had. I grew up in Kingston, New York, which is only, you know, 90 miles north of Yankee Stadium. So there were busloads of people there. So the nerves and the, the the adrenaline rush was, you know, when I was running in from the bullpen, I'm like, this is really happening. This is really happening. And uh, I just remember the first fastball I threw, I said, I'm just letting this thing go. And uh, I thought it was a really good pitch, but I ended up striking Otis Nixon out. So. Uh, it's funny. I was like literally watching that clip. Obviously, like, when we first interacted with each other, I was like, I have to look at this. And mm-hmm. I, I saw that and I literally said, listen, I'm no umpire. And I understand this was 90s camera footage. It's not 4K like we're luxury, like the luxury we have today. But I was like, that's right. pretty much down Main Street. Like what yeah. happened here? And do you think that happens to a lot of rookies? Um, I think it it's less now than it was in the past. You know, the, you know, you had those old school umpires that just, you know, they gave the veterans the benefit of the doubt and, you know, they felt that they earned it. And uh, again, I, I think it was just one of those things where, you know, you just wanted to have your opportunity as well. And, you know, you work so hard to get there. And uh, I always said the hardest thing to do is stay there because you had, you know, a hundred guys in the minor leagues that wanted your job. So, uh, getting there was, of course, was difficult, but you know, staying there was even more difficult. So, like you said, growing up in Kingston, uh, like ninety miles north of Yankee Stadium, like were you a Yankees fan growing up? No, crazy thing. I was a diehard, diehard Fred Lynn fan growing up. So I kind of rooted for the Red Sox, believe it or not. As crazy as that sounds, but even a funnier, more ironic story 
was I was drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates and um, I had a really good rookie season in Watertown my very first year. You know, I had a really low ERA. I led the, you know, New York Penn League in saves. And uh, my very first spring training, I'm in um, uh, in Pirate City, you know, with the Pittsburgh Pirates and I'm pitching on an eight ball field. And the general manager at the time, Larry Doty, came up to me and said, son, I need you to go pack your bags. I said, oh, man, I'm getting released ready. He's like, no, you're going to join the major league team on a three day road trip as an extra pitcher. And I'm looking around saying, am I on candid camera right now? I thought it was a big joke or I was being punked. And um, it turned out that um, you'll probably remember this name, but Bloss Minor, uh, who pitched for the Mets for a few years, uh, he and I went as extra pitchers for the um, uh, for the big league club, uh, just so in case they had any issues in, in their games. And it turned out that that first night uh, we played the uh, Detroit Tigers in Lakeland. And um, Doug Drabeck was actually pitching for the Pirates. I remember the pitching coach, Ray Miller, came down to the bullpen. I'm just sitting down in the bullpen, just enjoying it, soaking it in. I didn't say boo to anybody. I was scared to death. Here I am, a 23-year-old kid. Uh, I'm watching a, a Major League Spring training game from the bullpen. And Ray Miller looks at me and goes, hey, uh, if Drabeck has a 1-2-3 inning, you're in the next inning. I look. I said, I said me? And I got up, guys, and let me tell you something. I threw the first two pitches, and I was just ready. I was like, I was so amped up. I remember Jim Gott, who was the closer for the Pirates at the time, he's like, hey, hey, slow down, big boy. You're going to be taking my job in a year. And uh, so I'm, you know, I get loose, and sure enough, Draymond has a one, two, three inning. So I am walking down to the dugout with dry cotton mouth. I get in the dugout, and then I get with um, – uh, Junior Ortiz was catching that inning. So I got with Junior and, you know, we went over my signs. And, uh, believe it or not, as crazy as this may sound, I can't even make this up. The first batter I faced was Fred Lynn. My childhood idol. Oh, I my got, goodness. Him. And um, I threw a first pitch fastball and he proceeded to line a single right past my head for a base hit. And then I ended up striking out Mike Heath and... Um, and uh, Tori Lovello, uh, I had two strikeouts to, to end. And Chet, I, I'm sorry, I struck out uh, Mike Heath and Chet Lemon. I got Tori Lovello to pop up, and I got out of the inning. Uh, no runs, one hit, with two strikeouts. So it was it was a really cool uh, experience. That's got to be such a, like, you know, I can only literally imagine, like, my inner boyhood dream is, like, oh, man, I'm pitching, and Bernie Williams, I'm facing Bernie Williams. Like, he's my favorite Yankee, and – I like I don't know what I would do, and it's like oh I just let up a hit to my favorite player. I yes. sh- I've been wa- I've been watching this guy forever. I should just know what he can't hit. Did you ever yes. kind of like feel like that? Um, no, I think I was so nervous. I really wasn't even thinking, Barnsley. I, I I was just I'm like okay. He put down fastball. I threw a fastball. I said right, I'm gonna try to throw it by him, and uh, obviously you know my fastball was nothing to him. He just lined it right back up the middle and. Uh, just went on about my day, but um, it, it it was an incredible experience. I just, it was, it was almost like it was a scripted movie. It was really crazy how that worked out. And it's pretty cool too, that then you have being a Fred Lynn fan, so kind of being a Red Sox fan, and then your first game at Yankee Stadium in front of all your friends and family, all these people from Kingston, and you're playing the Red Sox. Like, I mean, yeah. it's just, it's amazing how these things work out. Yeah, I, I actually watched that YouTube clip and I actually, remember you in that game so remember you kind of had that three as i was watching kind of i guess the three quarters arm delivery and i'm watching like oh wow this is bringing back so many memories and i tried to find your baseball card which i know i have because that was the era when um 
like I was just I was the age where like I was really into baseball I like I was into girls but girls weren't into me yet so really all I had was baseball and I every year I'd get the team packs of the Yankees so I know I have your card somewhere but my girls had strep throat th uh, this week so I wasn't able to find it in that time okay well, we, we can chat offline and we'll make sure that you get a couple. I think they're like four cents on eBay or something like that. I, I got to know, you know, here at Bleacher Brawls, we're the home of Red Sox and Yankees rivalry. And, sure. you know, a couple of the other guys that we work with, you know, those those schlubs, Red Sox fans. Mm -hmm. And we as fans, we are so into that rivalry. I have to know if in the clubhouse, like the players feel similarly to us as fans about the rivalry. I would say it's a little more than the normal series. Um, I just remember, you know, the nostalgia of walking into Fenway and, you know, the, the nostalgia of walking into Yankee Stadium. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that is just really cool is just being out there in BP and just seeing how short that wall is at Fenway. People don't realize that wall is really short. Whatever they have listed on that wall is not correct. It's way shorter. <laughs> you just settled an argument for a bunch of us here. Thank you very we much. We have to tell Luke that. Oh, man. It's I, I, I even think I can hit one over the wall. That's how short it is. So um, it, it's just uh, uh, the rivalry is there and, and you do feel it a little bit more than the normal series but uh, I try I, I when I was there I just tried to treat everybody the same I didn't really um, uh, put much emphasis extra on you know opposing teams I just I, I was just so worried about keeping my job and you know doing what I had to to stay there that uh, I just I treated everybody the same I didn't care if they were the number one hitter or the number three hitter or the number nine hitter so I got to ask, like, what were some of your favorite cities, like major league cities to go to, and even some of your favorite minor league cities to go to? I mean, you must have traveled all throughout the country. Yeah, uh, pretty much. You know, I've, I've hit most of them, um, even in the minors. You know, I got to play in AAA, uh, AA, single A. So I've gotten to see a lot of the great cities and just very fortunate to be. But, um, you know, there were just, you know, obviously Boston was always fun to go to. Um, uh, I, I loved uh, pitching at Camden Yards. I don't know why. I just, you know, I always loved Camden Yards. Um, I, I liked Jacobs Field, Cleveland. Um, I, I, I think if I had a favorite, though, it would have to be Seattle. Um, I just loved Seattle. I, you know, I would leave the hotel. I would walk from the hotel and I would have like my path. I would go to Pike's Market and watch the guys tossing the fish. And then I'd walk down to the Seattle Aquarium and I'd go into the aquarium and look at the penguins. And uh, this was when they had the kingdom. You know, it wasn't Safeco Field yet. So uh, I remember just walking. I, I would do that walk every day. And I just, I absolutely loved just the, you know, the, the, the sound and, um, I just, I, for some reason, I just really loved playing in Seattle. I think maybe because I made my debut there, but uh, it just has a really special place for me. In the minor leagues, I would, so many great cities in the minors. You, know, you have the, the old towns in New York, in the New York Penn League, you know, the, 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 the James Towns and the Oneontas. And, uh, but, you know, I think uh, I, Nashville was always great to play when the Nashville Sounds had the Triple A team. It was the Cincinnati Reds when I was playing. Um, 
I loved playing in Buffalo. I, you know, I played in Buffalo for two years with the Pirates. You know, Buffalo is a really great city, and and it, it continues to just get you know better and better. Um, uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. You know, this the, the field is on an island in the middle of the Susquehanna River. It's really cool to play there. Uh, you know, those those are some of the ones that come to my mind right away. Uh, traveling, just quick sidebar is which city had the best food, or like you're like, hey, if you could give a recommendation on like one or two restaurants in a very specific city, that would be awesome too. Well, I, I always re- I can't remember the name of the exact restaurants, but I do know that when we went to Kansas City, Danny Tartable always took us to these best steakhouses. I don't remember the names of them, but I always remember that it was like incredible steak. Um, there was a place called uh, Murray's Steakhouse in Minneapolis. Um, loved the food there. I remember I went there. I got sent down, uh, and I had time before my flight. So I went out to dinner, and I just remember going to Murray's and getting a nice steak dinner and you know, drowning my sorrows in the dinner. Some guy on a violin came up to me playing. I just thought it was pretty cool. Um, the worst, I, I would say the worst city and the place I hated going the most, though, by far was Oakland. It was just dreary, miserable, uh, where we stayed sucked. I mean, everything just sucked. The field sucked. The Everything sucked in Oakland. It was awful. Oh, no. San Francisco is beautiful, but Oakland sucks. It's awful. It's awful. Baltimore's great either. You know, some rough areas in Baltimore, too. So what was your, who was the most memorable strikeout you ever had at any level, like a player that you would just never forget? Like I struck this guy out or it could have just been a great, like called strike looking or just what's like some of your most memorable. Um, Well, I have, you know, I have quite a few hall of famers on my list. You know, I struck out Dave. I I think probably the most memorable one was I came in in Minnesota uh, in relief for Steve Howe. I don't know if you remember Steve Howe. Um, but, uh, he had loaded the bases and I came in and faced Dave Winfield with the bases loaded and I struck him out on three pitches. So that was pretty cool. That's freaking awesome. (laughs) That was pretty cool. And, you know, I struck out Eddie Murray, uh, another hall of famer. Uh, and my first, my my first major league strikeout was Alex Rodriguez. You know, he was, uh, 18 years old or 19 years old with the Seattle Mariners yeah, he swung at a, a split finger fastball that was I threw it about fifty-two feet and he swung at it. I don't think he saw too many of those in high school. So I figured it would probably be an easy pitch for him to uh uh swing at. And uh, luckily I was fortunate. Uh struck out Mark McGuire. Um I really had a lot of strikeouts against the Angels. Um, you know, Jim Edmonds I got a couple of times, you know, guys like that, uh Spike Owen. Uh, but then I also gave up some home runs, you know, at one point, I think Chili Davis was two for two off me with two home runs, totaling about a thousand feet between the two of them. So I was just kind of going to follow up is like, you know, as a pitcher and it's like, you know, you never want to give up runs because your job is to get outs. But is right. is it like some sometimes a little cool? You're like, hey, that guy hit a home run off me. I, and I know that's probably not, you know, when you're in the game and you're like, I don't want to give up a home run, but. You know, retrospectively, you're like, that guy hit a home run off of me. Yeah. I mean, uh, I look back at my career, and, you know, I, I considered myself a power pitcher. So I, I knew I was going to give up home runs and I was going to get strikeouts. And I think my stats kind of reflected that. I think I averaged about a strikeout an inning. And, um, you know, I gave up 
a few home runs, and I gave up home runs to legitimate people. I gave up a home run to Albert Bell, uh, Joey Bell, whatever he goes by. Um, Carlos Baerga got me. Um, Tony Phillips got me. Chili got me twice. Tim Salmon got me. Um, Mike McFarland from the Red Sox, he got me at Fenway once. Um, Greg Vaughn got me. I don't know if you remember Greg Vaughn, you know, guys like that. But yeah, I think the one that bothered me the most, though, was in 1994, um, I pitched, I came in relief against the Toronto Blue Jays uh, at Yankee Stadium. And this was the last game before the strike. And I gave up a home run to Ed Sprague in like the 12th or 13th inning. And prior to that, Ed Sprague never, never even sniffed a ball off of me. I, I faced Ed probably 10, 12 times. And I don't even know if he put a ball in play and uh, ended up giving a home run up to him and uh, ended up being the losing pitcher right before we went on strike in uh, 94. Man, that's brutal. I mean, so you you brought up the strike. What was that like to have, finally make it to the majors? It's your first season, and then the season gets ended on, like, with the strike. Like, what were your thoughts on that? Like, were you in favor of going on strike, or were, did you want to just kind of play baseball? Like, can you kind of walk Well, you know, I, I had just gotten there a month prior. You know, I got called up during the All-Star break in July, and I was having the time of my life. And, you know, when we went on strike, the, the veterans were very nonchalant about it. Hey, I'll see you in a couple of weeks, or I'll see you in a week. And, you know, I don't think anybody ever thought that the season was going to be over. And, you know, we were rolling at that time in 94. We were up on Baltimore, I think, by six and a half, seven games. And, um, I think they did like a simulated world series between us and the Expos. And, uh, that's who they, you know, predicted was going to be the, uh, uh, the two world series participants, but yeah, I was sad about that. But, uh, what happened, um, as the strike continued, the Yankees actually sent me down to the minors to keep pitching, thinking that, you know, I could stay in shape. And then the union, uh, the Major League Baseball Players Union blocked that and said, no, you can't do that. And then they recalled me and I had to go back on strike. But it worked out in my favor because I got all the Major League service time of the strike that, you know, they negotiated in the collective bargaining agreement. Wow. So you mentioned some of the players were nonchalant. I mean, were there any guys that were like on the team? Like, first off, I don't even know who your labor rep would have been on the Yankees at that time. But was anyone really like pro like, yeah, like, let's go out and get our money? Or did it seem like more guys were like, like you said, like, okay, a couple of weeks and let's just get back to business. I think everybody that we, you know, that I remember talking to was like, Hey, this will be over quick. And, you know, you know, they don't want to cancel the season. And you know, I think the major league baseball player union thought that the August timeframe was a great time to strike because it was, you know, right there at the tail end of the season. And, you know, the owners didn't want to lose the playoff revenue and the world series revenue and all those uh, revenues that would come with, um, you know, the TV packages. So uh, I, I think everybody was just of the opinion that this was going to be over quick and, you know, we'll get back to work shortly, but uh, that ended up not happening. Was there ever a point like through that strike process where you're like, man, like this could be it. Cause you just alluded to the fact that you just got it there a month ago. And were you like, Oh man, like if this keeps going on, like I might be out. Like, was there ever that kind of thought? Oh, of course. I mean, I was scared to death and, you know, I worked my whole life to get there. And then, you know, just like that, it was taken away and it was nothing that I could do. I mean, I, well, I was a rookie. I was just, I was going to go with the flow no matter what they told me to do. And I was going to do it. I think that that was, um, 
you know, just unfortunate timing. And then uh, getting myself ready to stay in shape for spring training, I ended up uh, slipping and falling on ice while I was running. I tore my meniscus and I went into spring training. You know, I had surgery on Christmas Eve. And uh, I was running on New Year's Day. So it was uh, one of those things where I just had to, you know, make sure I had myself ready to go. That, that's, you know, I first off, that stinks. Like, but the, to see the fact that you, like, made that recovery, like, all right, cool. Well, I have to get back to it, you know. I yeah, no, there, was, there was no choice for me. I, I had to get myself ready because I knew that, you know, I was, you know, right there, you know, probably the last guy on the roster in the, in the bullpen. So. I wanted to make sure I, I, I broke with the team, and I, I luckily I did. Yeah, Was there anyone maybe in that bullpen who was like, dude, don't worry about it. Like, you're going to – not necessarily reassuring you, like, hey, like, dude, don't worry. You're going to have a spot. Or was there – was it just like, hey, man, like, you're on your own. You got to figure it out. Yeah, I would say I would say the guys were pretty good about it. You know, Bob Whitman and, and Steve Howe were like, yeah, you're going to be fine. But then the Yankees got John Wetland during spring training. And then I was like, oh, I'm done. I'm done. But I ended up still breaking with the team and uh, making the team out of spring training. So that's really cool. And th- so now my next question is who was, who were like a couple of the guys that really made you feel welcome when you finally got called up to the show? And it's like, all right, cool. Like you're the new guy. You walk in with your bag into the clubhouse. Yeah. And who was kind of like the first couple of guys to like hey, make you feel welcome? I would say um, Xavier Hernandez was one of them. Uh, I don't know if you remember Xavier. He was a relief pitcher as well. Um, he was really great to me. Jimmy Leyritz, uh was really cool to me. Um, believe it or not, Wade Boggs loved me, and he would, you know, he'd look after me. And uh, he was he was a little cheap though at times, but you know, he he, he seemed to disappear every time the bills came. But you know, <laughs> that, that was, but uh, and then Don Mattingly was great to me. Uh, Donnie was really good to me as well. So. That's that's awesome. So I want to ask a couple of questions about your post playing career. So if, if Wikipedia is correct, and I mean that's a big if, it said you were director of baseball operations when you were at the Hudson Valley Renegades, correct? That, that is correct. Yes. So I just want to ask, like, what were some of your responsibilities, and then like your favorite parts of the job, and some parts of the job you maybe didn't really enjoy as much? Sure. So basically, I was the liaison between my between our you know affiliate and the Tampa Bay Rays. So anytime they had a complaint about anything uh, that kind of went through me, if, you know, they were worried about the field conditions or, um, you know, just anything that they needed kind of went through me, uh, team travel, uh, making sure the umpires were, you know, taken care of, uh, official score fell under me, you know, all the media relations fell under me. So there was a lot to it. Um, I also, uh, before I was that, I did the director of food services. I was director of food services for 11 years. Uh, I wanted to get my foot in the door. I, um, when I retired, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I did a couple of color commentator uh, spots for the Hudson Valley Renegades. Uh, I was the color commentator and Brian Kenny, who has you know, gone on to a great career at ESPN, uh, he did the play-by-play. And so, you know, when I was there, I was doing the call. I'm like, man, this is a really cool place. You know, they do a lot of cool things. And I remember calling them up and seeing if they had any openings in their organization. And the only thing they had was uh, the director of food and beverage. And so I said, I'll take it. I'll do it. And I ran with it for 11 years and uh, really liked it. And 
but it was time for change. And then uh, I did the uh, director of baseball operations for another 12. And then uh, I left last year because uh, one of my clients uh, pretty much made me an offer I couldn't refuse. That's got to be really cool. Like just seeing baseball from a different aspect, going from player to like, all right, now I'm seeing baseball, you know, and you're kind of taking care of, you know, not only just like the umpires and, you know, food and beverage for the, but you, you've almost got to look at it from like a fan's standpoint, like, Hey, like, how do I give the fan the best, you know, experience? Yeah. hundred percent. And, you know, I, I think just having that opportunity to, to be in baseball for, 33 years you know 10 as a player and then another 23 in a front office um i got i got to know pretty much every aspect of the the business and um i i i just feel very fortunate that i got to do that but you know like you said barnsey i think one of the things that i loved the most was just uh making sure that our customers were happy and that you know we really put a good product on the field kind of looking at it from baseball from the other end going from player to front office is is there something that you know, if you're ever like, oh man, these fans just don't get it. Like how could, like, you know, I feel like on Twitter or wherever, just random fans, whether it be a sports bar or they're just hanging out at friends' houses, they're always like, well, how come the team isn't making these moves? How come they're not doing this? How come not this? Is there something from the front office standpoint that you can kind of give us a little bit of insight that we might, as fans might miss? I'll tell you in the minor leagues, I think one of the biggest things that the fans don't understand are rain situations, rain delays and starting, you know, why aren't you starting the game on time? Because there's a lot that goes into that other than, because I've heard it so many times, oh, you're just keeping us here for the concessions. No, we're not. We're really not. We're just, you know, we want to make sure that uh, if the starters get hot, that they don't burn their starters because there's more weather coming behind. And we don't want to have them warm up now and and then have to rest or, or sit down for 45 minutes before they can start going again. So there's a lot of lot of things with that. There's, you know, the league sometimes will not want you to, um, you know, lose a game or a potential series if, you know, you still have a window to be able to get the games in. And I think that the fans always look at it from the standpoint, oh, they're just trying to keep us here to, you know, to make the money. That's usually, it's not even in the mindset when you're making the decision of what time you're going to start the game in the rain delay. Uh, that's the one. I think, um, you know, from the, from the big league side, I, I think that, you know, we all, and myself included, I've done it myself on Twitter and places because, you know, you, you wonder what the Yankees are doing, you know, with, with player personnel moves. And, you know, we all want to be Brian Cashman and, you know, think we, you know, know all the right answers. And, uh, you know, I was very vocal this, uh, this winter about, uh, I thought that the Yankees should go for Trey Turner and, and get a true leadoff hitter. And uh, because they don't have one, you know, they don't have a leadoff hitter. And, you know, here the best leadoff hitter in the game, in my opinion, is out there. And I would have went all in on him and I would have traded either Peraza or Volpe. And uh, I have been forever. I am a huge Corbin Burns fan. I have, I would trade any one of those prospects for him to get him into Yankee stadium, because um, I think that the, I think Rodon was a great signing. I think he was fantastic. That was to me, was a fantastic sign because when he's good, he's really good. 
Uh, but to me, Corbin Burns is probably one of the five best pitchers in the big leagues that nobody really knows because nobody sees him that much because he pitches for the Milwaukee Brewers. But when you watch him pitch, he is absolutely filthy. Like nobody wants to hit off of this guy. And, you know, I always said, you know, everybody always, you know, puts this uh, emphasis on the prospects. Well, that's what they are. They're prospects. They're not proven. Corbin Burns is proven. And, you know, I would give up Volpe. I would give up Peraza. I would give up, you know, Glaber, whoever I needed to, to get him in New York. And, you know, when you have a, a Cole, a, a Burns, a Radone, a, a Severino, I mean, that's legit. And now you have maybe Nestor Cortez as your five. I mean, that's a pretty nasty starting five. Um, I also was very disappointed that they don't didn't go get a, a real reliever. Um, you know, I think uh, I think they missed the boat with uh, the Minnesota closer. Uh, he was also, I think, from uh, the Padres prior to lefty uh, Anderson, maybe I think, or Taylor Rogers. I'm sorry, Taylor Rogers came to my head. Uh, I he was out there, and I he, I think he still might be out there, but. I would have went for him because uh, he's really, really good. Um, you know, we all saw what a debacle um, uh, Chapman was at the end. I mean, I, I think we all held our breath every time he came in. And, you know, I'm still, I still root hard for the Yankees. Uh, uh, I've been trying to do whatever I could to get to old timers day. I, I, I keep telling <laughs> everybody, you know, I used to give up home runs without trying. You need me to lay it in there for the fellas. Let's go. I'm your guy. <laughs> I just want, um, you know, I just want to go down there and throw it old timers. I think that would be the coolest thing ever. I just, I want to be in that rotation, you know, one of these days while I can still do it. If you're at old timers day, you got to let me know. Cause I'm, I'm going to that game. Right, I will awesome. be there. That we'll get Barnes. He started on the Twitter campaign. This guy is amazing at Twitter. He's going to start a Twitter campaign to get you at old timers. Listen, let's go. Just tell him I used to give up home runs without trying. You know, I'm, I'm really, I can hit some bats now. Let's go. Oh, that would be freaking phenomenal. And, you know, uh, you touched on Corbin Burns. So I have a I have a lot of family who live in the Milwaukee area, and I used to visit yeah. them in the summers growing up. So I saw a lot of Brewers games. I kind of casually root for them. Corbin Burns is awesome. And our other friend who's part of Bleacher Brawls, who's not here tonight, he's he was saying that the Yankees should get Burns. So it's just oh. we're hearing it from another person. He feels validated, and he's going to love oh, this. He, he is 100% validated because I have been on the Corbin Burns bandwagon for a while. Ever since I watched him pitch, I'm like, this dude is unbelievable. You know, they had three starters there. You know, Peralta, Burns, and Woodward, I think, is the third. Yeah, Woodruff. Uh, Woodruff, yeah. I mean, they're, they're as good as any three starters in the big leagues, those three, when they're healthy. So, um I, I think the Yankees need to part with one of the prospects and just get that really good frontline pitcher, and, you know, run with it. Because, uh, again, I think they did miss the boat on Trey Turner, though. To me, that, that would have been my guy. And I guess you couldn't afford maybe him and Judge at the same time. But Hal's got plenty of money. <laughs> That's really cool. And, you know, I would love to see them also make that move. And you, you touched on it, you know, and I, you know, you working in the minor leagues and now as a college coach, you know, you know, maybe some of these guys go to the minors at some point, maybe they don't. And it's one of those, 
how much do you, especially seeing it from the front office standpoint, is like how much do you weigh those prospects for those proven commodities? And do you think that general managers sometimes get it wrong or they overvalue one over the other? Yeah, I mean, it's not a perfect system. I mean, you know, a, a prospect is, like I said, they're a prospect. You know, they haven't proven that what they can do at the big league level yet. Um, obviously, the minors is you know a little bit different. And then as you climb the ladder, double A and triple A get a little bit closer to, you know, big league pitching uh, if they're a hitter and what they're going to see every day. But, um, you know, you saw to me, Peraza was overmatched when he was facing like Famber Valdez and guys like that. He had no shot at hitting them up there. Uh, you know, he was swinging at curveballs that were 52 feet in the dirt and missing them by a mile. And uh, I think that, uh, uh, but I was fortunate because I got to see Volpe and Peraza both come through Hudson Valley and both are extremely talented. And uh, I just don't think you need both. I think you can get rid of one and really get that frontline starter that uh, is probably the thing that can take you over the edge. Uh, I still think that they need a leadoff hitter. You know, Anthony Rizzo is not a leadoff hitter to me. I mean, he's a great player, but you know, uh, having a Trey Turner who's going to hit 300, steal 40 to 60 bases, and uh, play an incredible shortstop. I mean, that that would have been my guy for me. So, um, Joe, really, we're curious. Like, how did you end up getting uh, your coaching position, uh, coaching being the head coach at Maris? Like, how did that come about? Well, that happened kind of by accident. So, um, when I retired from baseball, um, you know, I was just doing some stuff on the side and. Um, I remember, this is a true story, I was at a casino in upstate New York, and I'm sitting at a blackjack table and just making small talk with somebody, and the guy's like, where are you from? I'm like, you know, Kingston. He goes, I'm from Kingston. So I introduced myself. He goes, oh, you're the ball player. I'm like, yeah, that was, that's me. And he goes, hey, have you ever thought about umpiring? You know, we, we're, we're looking for umpires. I'm like, well, you know, I really have not thought about umpiring because I get some pitching lessons on the side. And, you know, I don't want to be out there if one of my kids are pitching and I have to be the umpire. I said, I wouldn't want that. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm talking about softball. And I looked at him. I said, softball? Why would I want to umpire softball? He's like, no, it's great. The games are quick. They go by really quick. And so I said, sure, I'll give it a try. So I gave it a try. I'm like, wow, this is a really cool little sport. And, uh, the, the girls are really talented, but, you know, they did some stuff that just didn't make sense to me. And I would be like, why are they doing this? This makes no sense. And um, They would do some things defensively that just made no sense to me. And um, I remember um, working at the Renegades when I was there, we used to host the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference baseball tournament every May. And so I became really good friends with the Marist athletic director and you know, talking with him, Tim Murray. And, you know, we would talk about softball and baseball all the time. And uh, he had come to me and said, hey, listen, I just hired a new uh, head softball coach. He goes, I'd love for you to work with her and mentor her and uh, be part of her staff. And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll give it a whirl. So I did that for a year. You know, that didn't quite work out for me. Um, so I went, I left in the, the following year. And then uh, the athletic director called me in August of 2008 and said, uh, hey, you know, my head coach just took a new job. He goes, can you get me through the fall season? I'm like, yeah, sure. So I went there, you know, ran practices, ran our fall games. And, uh, you know, 16 years later, I'm still there. He still hasn't hired anybody else. So you alluded to it earlier. Everything seems like a storybook, right? Almost like here it goes. And it kind of just gently rolled forward to you. And that's sure. just such a magical, have you ever kind of like looked, just taken a second and go, how the heck did I get here? 
<laughs> yeah, you ever had those moments? I mean, there were so many times where I just look back. I'm like, you know what? If I were to die tomorrow, I can look back and say, wow, I got to experience some really cool things and just got a lot of cool breaks along the way. And I just I felt I feel very fortunate that I got to do a lot of the things that I've gotten to do. And then uh, so as we're starting to wrap up here, is there one like little anecdotal locker room story? You know, maybe in the majors that you were like, that was maybe not like, oh, man, I can't believe that this happened. But just something that was really just funny. Like, uh, like I think I think the thing I can just tell you guys that I always found funny was uh, I'm sure you've heard the stories about it, but uh, was kangaroo court. Uh, kangaroo court was where, you know, they just pretty much find everybody for everything. And, you know, the rookies got abused in there. And uh, I remember, you know, one of the things where, you know, I got fined uh, the very first kangaroo court because I was late for the championship season. So I had to pay five bucks for that. Uh, but uh, we had a great, um, a, a great road trip. It was a West Coast swing. And I remember we were in Anaheim. And Billy Connors was the pitching coach. So Steve Howe made me, I guess Billy, when he was younger, ate curdled milk and he just couldn't stand to see the sight of milk. So Steve Howe made me get a mouthful of milk and dribble bubbles out of my mouth. And Billy would gag and puke every single time this happened. And I said, I don't want to do it. I'm a rookie. I, you know, I'm going to get sent back down. And they're like, no, you're doing it. So they made me do it. I went up to Billy. I sat right across from him eating dinner and I did it. And he gagged and puked. And then they fined me for that. But the worst part was, you know, you had all the veterans on the jury. Boggs was the judge. You had Mattingly on the jury. You had Jimmy Key on the jury. And Mike Stanley was on the jury. And I remember that um, we were in Anaheim and we had finished the series of Anaheim. We were getting ready to get on the plane to fly up to Seattle. And I, I sat on the bus by myself. Well, Mattingly sits on the bus next to me and he took a Sports Illustrated magazine from the clubhouse. And I remember, uh, I forget who it was. They looked at me, they go like, that's a fine. I'm like, what? I didn't do anything. I'm sitting here. I didn't do anything. So we get to the kangaroo court in New York and, you know, they brought me up on charges for stealing a, you know, Sports Illustrated book from the clubhouse. And I'm like, I didn't do it. I said, that was Don Mattingly. He did that. He sat next to me. So they huddle up in their jury deliberations. And they look at me They're like, Mr. Asano, have you ever heard about guilty by association? Find $10 for the magazine. And, you know, that's... Uh, that's uh, yeah, that, that was my life as a rookie. But you know what? I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And uh, I was more than happy to hand over the 10 bucks to be there. So, John, real quick, does that change your perception of your favorite player ever? I mean, I, I, I hate hearing that Don Mattingly set you up, Joe. That, that breaks my heart in a little way. Listen, I wish Donnie a happy birthday every year. So I love that man. He's a good man. He took very good care of me. That, that's just freaking awesome to hear. Yeah. Like, I'm so happy that you told the Don Mattingly story. I mean, I grew up worshiping Don Mattingly, so uh, I was going to ask you about him, but that was just the best story you could have given. I'm glad. I'm glad. And then uh, I, so for the listeners, you know, you can't see it like we can, but uh, Joe's got a whole like rack of bats right behind him. And he was telling us a little bit before we went on air 
Uh, I was just wondering if you could share that one like cool bat that you have. Maybe not, you know, if you could just describe it for the listeners. Sure. Well, I got a couple of them actually. But um, when I was at Yankee Stadium, you know, when I was there, I said, man, I might not ever get a chance to get back here again. I better get some autographs while I'm here. And so I would go around and I would just take some bats out of the, you know, the main bat rack and uh, I'd get people to sign it. And I ended up being smart enough to get, you know, the whole 95 team to sign a couple of bats, which included Jeter, Mariano, Andy Pettit, Jorge Posada. And um, uh, I went to look just to see, you know, I wonder what kind of value this has. Well, guess what? It's it's priceless because there isn't another one out there with every the entire team on the bat from 95. And um, I remember we actually had at the Renegades one year. Uh, do you remember the um, uh, the pawn the pawn show from Detroit with the golds, Les Gold and Seth Gold and the daughter Ashley? I forget what it was called, but they actually did an appearance at the Renegades one year. And I told them I had the bat, and Les Gold wanted that bat in the worst way. He offered me 5,000 for it and I turned it down. I said, nah, I'm good. But uh, he, he wanted that bat, bad. That's just such a cool relic to like, yeah. you literally have a one of one item, you know, wait, as someone... wait, wait, I got one for John, hold on. <laughs> hey John, can you see this one right here? Oh, I can see that, that that's <laughs> fantastic. Donnie Baseball, Don Maddenly, I love it. That's my boy right there. Uh, that's cool. Like, and you know, you kind of said it. You know, you text him on his birthday every year. Are, are there like a lot of those guys from that year that you still are communications with? Um, I would say I, I probably stay in touch with Jim Lairitz, Don Mattingly, and Brian Bowringer the most. Those three. Yeah, I love Lairitz. What a guy! Like, really came up, had a couple big clutch hits in '96 for the Yankees in that World Series. He just always seemed like such a gamer. Um, that, that's a name I haven't heard in a while. So I, that's fantastic that you're in nine, 95 as well. I don't know if you remember when we had that uh, 13, 14 inning game in game two of the series mm -hmm. against Seattle and he hit the walk off home run to right field. Uh, and we didn't get into Seattle till like 7 a.m. The next day we got on the flight after that. It was crazy. Wow. Wow. That's rough. Hey, yeah. so speaking of all these bats, did O'Neill ever beat up a water cooler while you were around? Oh yeah, he was a big baby when I was there. I love, I love Paulie. Paul and I had the same agent, but yeah, he, uh, he, he, he didn't like water coolers very much. He, he, he but great guy, and uh, he was a tremendous hitter, man. He, he was a gamer all, all the way. Uh that's just, uh, that's so cool. That like, yeah, he's a big baby. <laughs> Growing up as a kid, I was like, dude, Paul and he was like one of my heroes. Like he was just. Yeah. He just seemed like he was all business. Like he gets on the field, he's in the outfield, like practicing, practicing his swing. Like I yeah. loved that attitude. I know John does oh, no. too. He's he's awesome. I, I yeah, I'm teasing when I call him a big baby, but uh, I wouldn't say that to his face. You know, he's a big dude. You know, he's six foot four. That's a big dude. You know, he was um, a really good tennis player too. He was like one of the top tennis players in the city of Cincinnati. Really? Yeah, he was incredible. That's so. That's such such an interesting fact, and you know. Uh, is there anything like super interesting besides obviously being baseball, having all the experience you had in, you know, front office and a little stint in wrestling? Is there anything that you want the listeners to know about you that's just not necessarily baseball related? No, I mean, uh, I, I've written a children's book that I'm hoping to have published uh, 
soon. Uh, so if you know any uh, picture book literary agents, I'd love to be introduced to one. If anybody has any connections in that world, it's like impossible to get to that world. It really is, you know, to try to find one. But uh, that would be great. Uh, other, or if any of the listeners have a, a picture book literary agent in their uh, family or friends list, uh, would love to just talk to them and just see if this is some road I can go down because I think it's a pretty cool little story. That uh, do you mind if I ask what the story is about, or do you want to keep that hidden for right now? No, it's fine. It's about an aardvark that plays baseball. So <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I hope to give that to you know. If it ever gets published, which I am sure it will, I'm I know John and I will make sure we have my son is five months old right now. I'm like, hey, I'm like, thank you. I, I thank my wife. Hey, Amy, if you're listening, thank you so much for watching him during this recording. I appreciate you and I love you. And I'm gonna get this Artvark baseball book for him. <laughs> All right. Well, it, it it's it's really cute. I've been told that people love it that I read it to. And um it just like I said, just trying to get into that. Uh, literary world is it's near I've written to a bunch of them and I never get a response back it's just really weird it's a really weird world um and as we wrap up kind of like one of the last questions I want to ask is is there from your time in baseball player front office um what's the biggest takeaway and life advice that you could give literally anyone that you learned from being part of baseball um, I, I think, you know, one thing I always took with me, uh, my older brother, Paul, uh, he also played in the major leagues. We had the same mom, different dad. His last name was Rungi. Um, he played for the Atlanta Braves for, you know, a few years and uh, had probably parts of five, six years in the big leagues. Uh, and one thing he always told me is, you know, you just never know who's watching you or you never know. Um, you know, who has plans for you. And uh, I always took that to heart that every night I went out and pitched and played when I was with the Pirates, I wasn't just pitching for the Pittsburgh Pirates, but I was pitching for every major league team because you never knew if there was a scout in the stands that loved me. And uh, that's ended up what happened. That's how I got to the Expos. And then that's how I got to the Yankees. I got rule five two years in a row. And um, that uh, that always stuck with me. And uh, it almost it turned out kind of in real life as well that, you know, I was doing a really good job for one of my clients and so good of a job that uh, I'm now working for him and his wife. Uh, it's a law firm. I'm now a director of marketing for their law firm. And, uh, you know, it just uh, it wasn't in my plans to have a career change. But like I said, it was just something that I just didn't think I could refuse to do. And, you know, they still allow me to coach at Marist. And uh, for me, it's just been a, a, a great transition, you know, out of the game of baseball. Uh, do I miss going to a baseball field every day to work? Yes, but uh, I don't miss the hours, uh, game days, getting there at 9 a.m. and getting home at 12 p.m. or, you know, 12 a.m. and then getting back up in the morning and doing it again for six games in a row. That, that gets old after a while. And uh, so uh, I don't miss that, uh, but I do miss the camaraderie and going to a field every day. That's awesome. You heard it here from Joe. Joe, thank you so much for meeting with me and John. We really appreciate it. You know, John, you, do you have any last things for Joe? Uh, Joe, just I, this was a great time. Thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing your stories with us. We really enjoyed it. And when we post this podcast, we're going to be tweeting at the Yankees to get you an old timers day. Everybody oh, I love it. Ross crew. When we retweet this, it, we're going to be tagging the Yankees saying this is a guy. He's hometown from New York. He belongs at Old Timers Day. So we're going to do our best to get you there. 
And listen, feel free to use the line. He used to give up home runs without trying. Just, you know, he'll lay it in there for the fellas. Let's go. Absolutely. Paul and you and Wade Boggs, like, here you guys go. This is your buddy. He's going to groove one for you to put it out on the park. Oh, yeah. I'll throw a nice little inside cutter so they can launch it up into them bleachers, man. Oh, that, that would be fantastic. Just, Joe, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. We hope you had a great time. You're definitely welcome back anytime. Love you know, doing we- it. I enjoyed it, guys. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bleacher Brawls. Thanks for listening. Um, make sure you're checking us out on bleacherbrawls.com. We've got episodes, you know, articles, episodes, everything going out. And, you know, make sure to give us a follow and tell a friend. And thanks for listening to me, Barnes, John, and our guest, Joe. Thank you.